And we're back. I'm Ryan and this is Lockie and you have found yourself at the Abstractable Podcast. This is a show where we talk about some of our favourite thinkers and the ideas in which they have. Today is no exception and we bring up a man who's had more mentions across our show than any other. Uh, This is Fooled by Randomness by Nassim Nicholas Taleb. So in the episode, we discuss this concept of signal and noise and what it actually means. We also talk about the prevalence of randomness in in the world and in your life and how it affects you in your everyday. And we also talk about why you shouldn't really care about the morning routines of your heroes, which is kind of prophesized on other podcasts. So why care about this book at all? Well, it kind of helps you understand the cause and effect relationship of the world around you and kind of what you should focus your energies on. So you can find out more about the author by listening to basically any episode that we've recorded of this podcast because we talk about him all the time. But his website is fooledbyrandomness.com and if you want to hear him get into ugly Twitter fights with people, you can uh, go to his Twitter handle at nntaleb where he absolutely runs a mark. So also, don't forget, you can find full video of our episodes on YouTube if you want to see our faces. Uh, and also check out our show notes, um, including other books we mention in every episode at our website, abstractable.co. We really hope you enjoy the episode. And we're back. Back for another, back How for are another you, episode. Sir? We made it. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> yes. Tell me something interesting. <laughs> so random, 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 uh, interesting fact for the day. Hitting on our favourite word too. Um, I was actually listening to a podcast. Um, surprise, surprise! About blue light and the dangerous impacts that it that it can have have on us. Um, Ah, is this from like electronics and things like that? Yeah, and I think we, I think, I think most people seem to know about blue lights impact. You know, you don't want to be sitting in front of your computer late at night um, because it's going to impact on sleep and those type of things. And uh, like right now, yeah, for perfect, me. perfect timing for you, mate, to do a to do a podcast. And so it's. It was this podcast, I think it was the Lifestylist podcast, um, and it was with a doctor named Alexander Wunsch. I think he's German. And he's basically spent all his time researching about light and and basically the, uh, the crux of it is that there's a lot of damaging impacts, not just to our like circadian rhythm, but, um, you know, our eyes and... Um, overall like internal body chemistry that happens when being exposed to to you know light that's light that's closer sorry i'm gonna get this right so light goes from like infrared to ultraviolet you know that, that, and there's everything in between the rainbow in between um so i think everything that's closer to the blue side from like green light is is where we start to run into two issues um and 
he said that the shift in people's, um, uh, you know, how we've had the big LED light shift. And whilst that's, you know, great for energy consumption um, from a household perspective, it's actually quite bad for us in terms of impacting on circadian rhythm and, and different things. So something, something to bear right. in mind. Okay, well, I suppose I'll have to not use my computer late at night and stuff. I mean, like, you've got the blue light uh, thing. If uh, on your phone now you can turn that off and on, but I suppose it doesn't do it for the computer screen, right? Yeah, so there's – have you heard of Flux? So no. Flux is, is that exact thing you can get on your computer. Right. Okay, well, I'll have to download that. Uh, but turns out pretty much everything kills you, it does, doesn't it? It so does. Everything, everything's, everything's trying to kill you. Blue light. Something else will get me first. <laughs> well, the, the, ironic, the ironic thing is, right, is I think from a UV ray perspective, he spoke about, you know, obviously going out into the sun and soaking up UV rays is, you know, obviously damaging to skin. But he says, you know, one of the one of the internal mechanisms we have is cortisol, which is like the stress hormone. And so it's like you know, if you have enough cortisol running around in your system, you're going to reduce the impacts of of the skin damage. And then he's like, so you work out that obviously it's it's just not good to be out in the sun because you don't want all the cortisol running around in your body either. Okay. <laughs> see, see, don't go wait. outside. <laughs> But, no, but you still need to get stuffed. vitamin D, mate. Oh, there you go. Right. Everything in That's moderation, it. including moderation. That's it. So the book today. We've come, we've come full circle and he's got another dedicated episode. So we don't have to mention him multiple times throughout the show. We can just have one show dedicated to him today. And who's that? <laughs> Nassim Nicholas Taleb. Fooled by Randomness, his first book. So book one in the Inshirto series. Uh, I hope that we keep recording the rest and do all five books at some point. Have you finished them, mate? All of them? No, I've no, not all of them, no. I haven't read Skin in Skin in the Game no. yet. And I'm probably halfway through the bed of Proscrutes. I can never say that properly. That's a pretty uh it's a pretty short read, that one, isn't it? from memory yeah it's kind of it's like something they're just a bunch of quotes like rules to live by type thing yeah yeah you just kind of pick it up and read a couple so it's not really a book to be read i suppose yeah it's something you can just have on the uh on the dresser each day mate you can pick it up and have a little gander get inspired for your day and then go out live you (laughs) Live your day like Nassim. I, I'm not sure that's something I'd really want. But you might not have too many friends. You'd end up with few. You'd end up with fewer friends. That's right. So, uh, so I guess we've talked about him already in the Black Swan episode, episode two. But um, this is kind of the first book in his in his series. And for those who haven't listened to the episode, we thought we'd give a short bio on him, probably. An abridged version. Yeah. I think the, um, so the Black Swan was described as one of the most 12 influential books since World War II, according to the Sunday Times. Um, and it's 
certainly had a big impact on I think both of us uh, after reading it. So, yeah. and this was a this this book is like a it's like an ease into the Black Swan. I felt, um, and he and he kind of talks about his whole manifesto and his whole way of looking at things. I felt. Yeah. He introduces you to the concept of randomness and then the other books I feel like are more uh, dedicated to specific aspects of what randomness does to the mm. world. So the brief bio, <laughs> he was born in Lebanon in 1960 and he lived there for his childhood. Uh, he, he was part of like the elite society and so he's, he had – family members who were in government. Um, I think his great-grandfather was a deputy PM and this gave him an interesting perspective to come into the civil war which broke out, um, which was one of the most influential parts of shaping how he thinks about the world and his life. Um, I think he actually remembers looking over the like a landscape of, you know, just, you know, mortars and missiles and, you know, the, the what are those trace, the tracer bullets flying uh, across the night sky. Oh, yeah. And that was just a, that was kind of a thing they did for entertainment, just to watch, watch the war happening in their own backyard. And he's just, God, what yeah. a change. And so I think, I think that was one of the moments where he kind of struck on this, randomness thing because basically his whole entire life had been shifted on its head um you know being part of the i guess elite in society to now just being you know everyone being equalized so a really really great eye-opening moment for him um and eventually he moved to america yeah he seen yeah he kind of talked about um i suppose with his uncles and stuff how after the war had broken out that they believe you know they were kind of talking about like it was inevitable like these things triggered it and it was always going to happen but beforehand they hadn't done anything to prepare themselves for such an eventuality and in many ways like lost their all their livelihoods and lives and money and things like that so he kind of saw those two things and thought, well, this doesn't make much sense. Yeah, he seemed like a bit of a, like a free spirit too, I think. I think he maybe he could have been like the black sheep in the family to some degree um, is the vibe I was getting because he was you know, arrested and was always participating in protests and different things. So I think he was quite an active, you know, an mm. active participant in trying to change or make things different, um, maybe. <laughs> Uh, so he yeah. he did eventually get out um, of Lebanon and moved to America, and this is where he um, became part of the Wall Street crowd. And just some little insight into into his life, though he he was living in Manhattan's Upper East, uh, and he was making quite a bit of money, you know. Because he was he was in quantitative finance, and so he he did he did quite well out of that. And but his his you know this grand New York apartment had nothing in it. The only thing that was in it were books, and and he he basically goes on to say that each time he would be walking past a furniture store or trying to go to a furniture store, he would you know 
before he got there, he would run into a bookstore and end up buying a few books and then never actually buy the furniture that he'd, he'd gone out to buy in the first place. So um, I don't think he ever spent any time in the house. He's definitely a, um, a well-read man, isn't he? Uh, and, yeah, he's a mathematician, effectively, that applied his skills on Wall Street. Yeah. The, the good thing about this, this book was that he, he gave more insight into his life uh, and his, his kind of upbringing to some degree than, than what you maybe get out of the Black Swan. And he also tells this story with these couple of heroes, which is, it almost seems like a metaphor about some of the ways in which he's lived his own life. I think it's Nero in the, in the book. Um, which we might get onto a little bit later, but it was quite nice just just seeing some of that stuff. And and one of the things that that really struck me, mate, was he he was a tinkerer. He 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 loved to tinker yeah. with things. And one of the things that he encountered being within the kind of mathematical finance world that he lived was the Monte Carlo engine. And so basically he taught himself to build them and was thrilled to just tinker around with them and play with them and tweak different things. So, Mm. yeah. Yeah, he was able to kind of generate multiple futures, as he said, and what was actually likely and unlikely to happen. Uh, Have you ever done any Monte Carlo modeling or anything? Yeah. it's used in it's particularly used in like um det- or trying to determine cost of projects or cost of capital in- infrastructure and that type of stuff so that's my my brief background in monte carlo engines but basically you 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 yeah, have like a a model for how you believe things will fit together and all the constraints around it and you kind of vary the constraints within particular ranges and across all those different combinations of different ranges and things, um, you run out this scenario model, you know, thousands of times or however many times you need to. And, um, you know, and then you find the, what's called like the, the P50 or the P80, depending on, uh, the type of, um, cost structure, for example, that you're after in this situation. So hopefully, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It's um, it's interesting because uh, it kind of gives you with a certain probability how likely an event will be under or over a certain threshold. It's just like it's it's actually a really different way of thinking. And when you do it, it it kind of surprised me um, how awesome it was to kind of see all these different like you said, different futures playing out in the computer in front of you. Yeah. And, and, and it, it's only as good as the inputs you put into it. Say, though. Rubbish in, rubbish out. Mm. Um, so he, he was obviously a, you know, he, he almost like played with this stuff in his spare time and this was his thing. And so he, he obviously then delved into the, um, deep into the mathematics and, why these things happen the way they do and and you put in these complicated 
financial models and see them all operate out in different ways. And, and this is where he starts to get a little bit more technical in how he, how he thought he saw the world. So um, moving on, he, as a result, seemingly was quite, quite successful in his time in the, in the finance industry. So uh, one of the big things for him was to make his, what's called the, the fuck you money. Um, as he terms it and it was basically enough money to give him financial independence and so uh, he worked at Credit Suisse he's worked at um, First Boston CIBC Dutch Bank and numerous numerous others and he's been advisors for many different um, funds and financial industries for governments uh, on approaching risk and things so he's he's done a lot of a lot of stuff in this in this space, um, and the the way that he goes about it uh, is is kind of like a real kind of risk averse approach. It's not about forecasting out what the future holds. It's about understanding how volatile or how risky it is at the moment, and so which means that during times of big crashes and things, he's done exceedingly well. So. The 2000 mm. NASDAQ dive and 2007-08 GFC, he, he absolutely raked it in. Um, huge amounts of money. And recently too. That's true, yeah. I think um, I can't recall how much, how much uh, it was 4,000% return last quarter. So yeah, just nice. a casual 4,000% return on, on – um, uh, on a fund that he's like this scientific advisor for. Yeah. Right. So you look, he's, yeah, he feasts once every 10 years <laughs> effectively. And uh, it's quite interesting though that he took the fuck you money, as you say, and used it to like basically think and write yeah, and mate, just I'm, kind of quit his day job, get out I'm of the I'm only hustle. reciting what he calls it. It's not the term I came up with. <laughs> so your yeah, disclaimer. That's my okay. disclaimer. <laughs> Fair enough. And then, and then, and then you'll probably hear me hear me swear about sixteen other times throughout this episode. <laughs> well, it, we needed to swear then because it's part of the story. It is. So it is. Yeah, I'm like just justifying that reason. Mum, if you're listening. That's why I swore. <laughs> so, um, and more recently, he, uh, we, obviously he made a lot of money, you know, for better or for worse during, during COVID and the big crash that was had there. Um, but he also, back in January, he put out a, like what was trying, trying to be like a, a public service announcement about how, how much of a danger COVID was going to be and basically imploring that, mm airports and things shut down yes airports will take a, a hit now but um it'll be worth it and um obviously was disregarded and then march eventually or yeah march rolls around and that happened anyway so very interesting man yeah yeah so i guess this book is about really the role of random events in in your life and that effectively, um, you know, luck plays a much bigger role in what happens than perhaps people realise. And then it's 
that has a whole lot of other interesting effects and counterintuitive uh, aspects to it, depending on how random the environment that you are involved in is. And I think that from him being in Lebanon and then going into Wall Street, he's put himself, the first one he's been exposed to a kind of black swan event that's kind of made him sit up and go, hang on. That doesn't make sense. And secondly, he's put himself into an environment that's highly random and he's kind of seen it in a way that no one else has really articulated quite like he has and brought all these concepts together. And throughout the book he talks about a lot of those things. Yeah. Um, I don't think I've had any major, certainly no major black swan events, um, you know, directly, directly impact me. But in my life, particularly like something like a civil war outbreaking. What about you? I mean, nothing that extreme. I would say what we're going through now, in my mind, kind of counts. Uh, I've certainly been feeling the COVID effects. Although, uh, although I think pretty recently, I think that's the closest thing. I think, I think Nassim will clearly emphasise that it's by far not a black swan because we could see it coming. Yeah, but I didn't. So to me, it is. That's know, interesting. Like, so. That's an interesting thought. So it's about like your perspective in that situation. Mm. Yeah, I think so. And then I suppose like there's other major events that you could probably see in hindsight have had big impacts on you that you didn't really realize at the time, say a signal and noise kind of thing. Um, but, yeah, we're kind of lucky to have lived in a pretty stable uh, country in Australia for most of our lives. So that's why these ideas are really interesting as well. One one thing I really like, because we kind of look at randomness as being um, scary. You know, it's like the unknown. We're coming into the unknown. We we It's, it's things that might catch us off guard and might cause us harm you know, but what he kind of explains in the book is that obviously randomness is part of it and it's, it's actually causes a lot of good and a lot of positive. And, and, you know, we need to, he says, you know, it's like, it's almost like he wants us to have like a healthy relationship with randomness and just realize it for what it is. And uh, I love the example he pulled out about um, Buridan's donkey have you heard about you remember the Buridan's donkey? Well, tell me about it. So the um, that's where you've you've got a donkey, right? And he's sitting equal distances from a you know a a watering hole, clean watering hole, and then on mm-hmm. the other side of him is mm-hmm. this like green pastured land that he can. Yeah, he can have a feast uh, of all the food that he wants to. And he's sitting equal distance between them. Yet Buridan's donkey in his world has no concept of randomness and there is no randomness that goes on inside of him. Um, Or maybe he's just dumb, we're not sure. And so because he's sitting equal distance in between and realises that he's actually both hungry and thirsty, he doesn't actually move. And so he just ends up dying in the same spot. And so the point, 
So he needs a nudge. He needs a nudge. Yeah. And so that's where randomness comes in because randomness gives us the nudge to go in one direction. It may not be the right direction that, you know, we may have been slightly more hungry and we might have moved towards the water instead, but we've made a move. Yeah, I think you're right. It's like the randomness that he's describing is kind of agnostic. It's neither here nor there. It's not out to get you or out to help you, but if you understand it or if you maybe more importantly, if you don't, it will affect your life without you realising it. And that will probably be negative because you're kind of oblivious. But if you understand it, you can kind of harness its power um, in some ways to understand the world around you, but also to help you where you want. What, what would you say, mate, is his, is one of his like, or his biggest like thing to avoid, you know, from a random situation or random encounters? Well, I mean, that is a difficult one, but I think what he tries to say is that you need to avoid what he calls blow-up risk, and he took this idea from the markets. And so in his time in the stock markets, and a lot of this book is based around, he, he relates the ideas of randomness to his time in the financial markets and talks about interesting stories. Um, and effectively what he kind of talks about is that people come into the stock market and they're the high-flying trader who's winning, you know, and making heaps of money and doing all this great stuff and they're seen as like almost like a, um, you know, a prophet because they're able to kind of predict the future and, and give all these great stock tips and then all of a sudden something changes that they didn't expect and bang, they lose more money than they've ever made because they've actually got this asymmetric risk relationship going on where they are making all this money but it's there's a kind of big sword sitting above their neck ready to drop and that when it does, <laughs> they're so exposed on the, on the downside that they end up losing everything and then some and they get wiped out of the business and they call that blowing up. And he gives lots of different examples of the ways that people do that. But effectively what it means is that you probably don't understand the cause and effect relationships of the world around you because it's so complex. But if you, if you kind of feel like you do and make all your decisions and have no redundancy and, and go as hard as you can to the, you know, extreme to try and maximise your profits or whatever you're doing, then you're probably exposing yourself to a huge downside. So cap the downside in all situations because you're probably not smart enough to know what's going on. Yeah, that's a, that's, that's a great way to think about it, mate. It's like, yeah, each, each time you're like, maybe leveraging something up, you know, so, you know, the common, the common way to, to maybe make more money in the stock market is if you are leveraged, because if you make 1% on a million dollars, it's a lot better than making 1% on a hundred dollars, you know, invest, but with mm. that comes the risk. And so 
each time you do that, whilst you, your situation from a how much risk you're exposed to might not have, uh, sorry, the chances of having a situation that you might lose um, may not have changed. The impact of losing is now like so much more impactful. And so that's yeah. that idea of asymmetry. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's right. You're exposed way more one way than the other and it only takes one of those events to wipe you out. Um, and this is why you don't want to, you know, buy, borrow the maximum possible to, you know, buy that extra house that you don't really need or something, you know, because that kind of conservatism can save you because you don't necessarily know what's going to happen in the future, even though you think you do. And so you may not see it coming, but all you need to know is something might be. Something good might be too, but something bad might be as well. Yeah. Yeah, spot on. The <laughs> he, he always brings up in the book the, the dentist. And... Yeah. And, you know, we, the dentist plays in a far less risky game uh, than what, mm. say, the, the person in finance does. And it's almost like pay a bit closer attention to people like the dentist who are exposed to um, needing to be show success or show skill or show ability every single day. Whereas something like the financial industry, you simply could be successful after, you know, for a number of years without actually uh, possessing any skill at all. Yeah. He kind of gives the example of like if you went into, um, I'll just make my own example up based off the same thing and kind of he's saying is that you fill a room with a, 10,000 people playing roulette, you know. Um, and the problem, let's just say you're only allowed to bet on black and red and they're a 50% chance each. There's no zero. So you know that at one point um, after the first spin, half of the people will get knocked out of the tournament, you know, if you've got to put all, you've got to put your money in. And then... The next time, probably, probabilistically, half again, half again. But there'll be some people, particularly if the the samp, the amount of people playing, the population is huge, that will just keep winning just by chance. It's just going to happen, you know. Uh, you'll get end up getting regression to the mean, but you'll there will be some people that are just wildly successful, and then you'll you'll have people going over there going, oh. Geez, how does it? How do they do it? Oh, the, well, I look at the last six numbers and I can see that they're all evens, uh, and so then I compute them all and divide them by six. Oh shit, that's the new winning formula, you know. And then <laughs> this keeps happening until they put all their money on, and and then they lose it all because it's it's actually a little bit. That is a game of chance. So, but the dentist is more of a low variance uh, area where you've got to be skillful. You've got to, you can't butcher someone's mouth. They've got the asymmetry kind of the other way. Like 
if you make a really big mistake on five patients, you're not going to have a dental practice for that long. Um, you need to show up and be good at your job every day and you accumulate slowly. Um, that seems to be depend. It kind of, if you're playing in the physical world, you're more likely to be in a probably a more of a low, low uh, volatility environment and you'll be less exposed to these wild variances. Yeah. You probably, um, yeah, you won't, you won't have a successful dental practice and you'll probably get sued. <laughs> have some very unhappy customers. <laughs> yeah. Hope, hopefully you've got insurance. Yeah, exactly. Um, um, the there's actually I don't know if you've seen these before, but this is actually really common in uh, in like email marketing by some you know some shady financial characters, and they um, <laughs> what 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 tends to happen is they might start out with a pool of you know x number of people, let's say a hundred people, and they will basically show two opposite results. It's like this stock is going to go up or this stock is going to go down or something like that. And then, you know, you get that in your inbox and you're like, yeah, what a load of rubbish. And then you see the next one, you see the next one, you see the next one. And what's what's actually, and and in each one, they're making just opposite predictions uh, from the other from the other prediction, right? And so what happens is the the people that, if the stock actually goes up in the first first um, after the first email, and you are receiving one of the stock going up emails, you will see the second email. But if you were in the the basket that saw the email that the stock's going to go down, you won't ever hear from them again. And so this just keeps happening, and eventually, after like ten. 10 goes at this they're like well you know guys this is um this has been great a great series uh you've seen how we've been able to pick 10 stocks in a row uh with our special formula um if you'd like some more insight sign up here and you look at it you go wow you know they've they've picked 10 stocks in a row these guys know what they're doing yet you're actually missing the uh all the losers that are that are sitting there yeah that's that's diabolical. Yeah, and it? obviously, the you know, with the, with the power of email, you can send it out to thousands of people at once. So, mm. very interesting. Be careful what newsletters so, you sign up for. Yeah, that's right. Have to avoid those ones. Um, yeah. So I guess it's um, it's interesting that he kind of talks about, I suppose, another version of the. Uh, but before I say that, actually, it's important to note that he doesn't say it's all luck there's skill involved you know and there's there's things you can do to make sure that you are successful it's not just a random game you have to be skillful to play but luck plays more of a a role in your life and and randomness than you than you really realize because the world is more difficult to understand the cause and effect relationships than you than you think so to kind of take the idea of um you know, this lucky stock picker to another level. He talks about the kind of uh, the monkey and the typewriters, you know, get enough monkeys with enough typewriters with enough period of time, you'll eventually get one of the great works of of fiction, I suppose. Shakespeare. Or nonfiction. 
Yeah, and so it kind of, uh, but then he, we've all kind of heard that before, but then he sort of says, well, would you then pay the monkey for his second book? What's your answer? <laughs> I was I was waiting for your answer. <laughs> well, I'd be intrigued to read it, but I'd say no. Sorry, there was a bit of lag on your end, so I was just waiting. Uh, so a bit of a connection issue. But absolutely, of course you wouldn't because you know it's kind of rubbish. But the more you understand the the world is just so interconnected and so crazy, like, and that we love to fit narratives around things to make us feel like we understand it, uh, then that's, uh, yeah, that's kind of... The crux. ...becomes more like a monkey and typewriter situation. Yeah. I think the biggest thing, mate, is he, he just wants people to appreciate randomness and just, just be aware of it because we just simply, you know, mm. I think he points out quite well that we just don't grasp it. Um, he, I want to read a, a small quote. He says, yeah, ask your local mathematician to, de- to define probability. He would most probably show you how to commu- compute it as opposed to actually explain it. And I think you would struggle to tease it out. But then he goes on to say that probability is just the belief in the existence of an alternative outcome, cause or motive. And so that's that's. That's very fascinating, like the, the belief in one of those things that it could possibly happen. It's like the alternative realities. He's, he's, he's got a real problem with the way probability's t- taught as well because it's generally taught in those sort of environment, like talking about scenarios like what I described with the roulette wheel or some sort of game or these sort of really closed system environments and it gives this kind of false narrative about uh, the neat probabilities of chess or something, you know, when the world isn't really like that. Yeah. Um, it's the, that's the ludic fallacy, isn't it? I think from the, that's actually from the black swan though. Hmm. Which we're not we're not allowed to touch on today, Lockie. Sorry, skipping ahead. <laughs> uh, one. Tell me about the. I was going to yeah, say one. I want to hear about the birthday, yeah, the birthday paradox. paradox. Um, so, if you meet someone randomly, there is a one in three hundred and sixty-five point two five chance of you sharing their birthday. Okay, that make, that kind of makes sense. Yeah. Um, Really unlike, like you feel like it's impossible yeah. almost. And a considerably smaller one of having the exact birthday of this same year. And that makes a lot of sense. Uh, although I'm probably, I'm sure you could probably have a, a, increase your odds by picking someone that looked similar in age to you. Uh, <laughs> so sharing the same birthday would be a coincidental event that you would discuss at the dinner table, no doubt. So let us take the situation where there are 23 people in a room. What is the chance of there being two people with the same birthday? And this is where it gets very strange is you go, well, you know, one in 365, um, 
yeah, I've got no idea. It's ridiculous, like, and maybe times by 23, a ridiculously small number. And the answer is like 50%. And the reason is because we're not specifying which, which people need to share a birthday. Any pair works. But the way that we look at that problem, like just from your logical perspective, or at least from my own logical perspective, is you're like, it's super small. There's no way 20, you know, 23 people yeah. in the room have, the, have a 50% chance of sharing the birthday. Yeah, it's kind of like um, he talks about the same sort of thing. It's like where you bump into somebody over the other side of the world you didn't expect to mm. and you go, what are the chances of us meeting here under the Eiffel Tower? Um, that's amazing. But what what you're actually testing for there is that will I meet anyone that I've ever met at any single point in this trip not will I meet John and Jimmy under the Eiffel Tower today which is a much much more specific thing it's actually like saying oh, I don't want the monkey to write Shakespeare I want him to write Othello yeah that's a lot and that's harder. why you don't hire that monkey again. <laughs> that's it. So, but do you want to tell me a little bit about, you mentioned signal and noise. Do you want to tell me a little bit about it and what it means? Yeah, so it probably ties into what we were discussing earlier around being able to understand what is a causal outcome. Well, what? That's, that's not the right way to say it. What is causal to cause an outcome? Maybe that's better. So this is something else that we think because we backfit narratives after the fact of when certain things happen, there's always a way that we've been able to see what caused a certain thing. So if the stocks go up tomorrow in the morning, they'll be like, oh, it's because uh, Trump announced this trade tariffs have been lifted or something. And then if it goes down in the afternoon, it's like Trump's trade tariff uh, didn't have the effect that we thought it would have had the opposite effect. So you can kind of, and you can notice this a lot if you watch sport. Um, this happens a lot if you're watching a game of footy or something. You'll be watching the first half and uh, Collingwood will be killing it. They're like, oh, it's just the way that, that the sounds like That sounds like together. the pies, mate. had a great week on the track. Yeah, that's it. I've had a great week on the track and they've, the way they're using the handballs is fantastic. It's fair, you know. And then they start going downhill and all of a sudden the narrative switches. And it may just be the to and fro of the game. I don't think they really know why. Um, so if you take that idea that we put an explanation to something that's happened, we kind of conflate that to mean then that we feel that we can know ahead of time what is something that's going to cause a big impact. So if you're on the train in the morning reading the newspaper, you can't and you, you know, you may just want to do it for entertainment, but you there's a fair chance you're trying to read it to kind of understand what's important, what do I need to watch out for? You know, it's kind of a human thing. Oh, this the government's doing this or that or you know, this has happened in the local square, there's been this crime or what have you. 
somewhere in your mind, you're actually kind of going, oh, I need to look out for that one important thing that I know, that if I see it, I'll know not to do this or to do this. But really, you actually are overestimating your ability to tell what's important. And only after a long, the longer the period of time that goes by, the more you're able to spot what actually was probably the cause because it becomes apparent because everything plays out. So an example may be that coronavirus. We may have read that in the paper late December and not really worried too much about it. But by, you know, sitting here in uh, mid the following year, we now know that that's one of the most defining events of probably all of our lives. But at the time, it's not that easy to spot among the myriad of other news. That's the noise. It's all the the noise is just everything, all the information coming at you. But within the noise, there is a signal and the important things. And so, yeah, he really talks about trying to not uh, really focus too much on trying to predict that in the moment. Yeah, he talks about, he he actually says that seeing people reading the Wall Street Journal on their way to, to work in the morning was his insurance policy for him to continue on in his option trading. Um, so he, yeah, he, he essentially refuses to, to read the news. And it's, it's because, you know, people, people read it for entertainment, you know, and see it for entertainment, just don't see it as a source of real information or information that you need to take take too much concern of the things the things that you take concern of you will realize it will be very obvious it's like we're not going to miss when we discover the automobile you know that you work that out that'll that'll that, that'll be obvious well yeah it kind of is and it isn't though like i'm reading a book on innovation at the moment and it's fascinating how often Things are invented, including the um, combustion engine, and not then applied in the right area or or actually put mm. to use. So even things that just seem so darn obvious to us now, there's like lists and lists of these that are essential to our life, weren't obvious at the time that these were actually useful. So that's a signal and noise issue. Yeah, hundred wow. percent. So, but the fact is, is the the automobile is was clearly a useful thing, and so it's it's still the test of time. It's something that we're still reporting yeah. on to today. You know, I'm sure it was getting reported on back in the start of the the twentieth century, and so it's pretty ob- yeah, it's pretty obvious now that that's a signal. It's what you're saying, yes, isn't it? Yes, correct. It's like we we almost read, uh, I, or at least maybe I I've fall see myself fall into the in the trap of like you know reading the news of not wanting to miss out on on what the exciting thing is or or what's currently happening. But there's a degree of it, yeah. And it, you know, sure, it's great for a, a bit of conversation, a bit of banter. But the to think that you're going to miss out on something. It's not going to happen. And if there's something really, really big, you're going to find out about it some other way. Yeah, that's right. You you won't miss it. 
not in this day and age. So he folk, so his whole approach is don't worry about the specific thing because you won't predict it. Just know that something really unexpected will happen every once in a while and be ready for whatever. That, but have enough kind of contingency that you're kind of covered for it. And in his case, he does the opposite. That's kind of how he got his uh, FU money. Is that he, Oh, nice. Censored. Is that he kind of sits. Yeah, you should have done that. Sorry. Mrs. Griffin would be much happier. So that's kind of how he did that is that he puts these bets that he just sits in waiting for something. He doesn't know what, but it'll happen. And, you know, another version of the signal and noise is that, you know, if you're worried about noise all day, you're in constant motion, you know, moving around trying to figure things out. Whereas if you're worried about signal, you can kind of only focus on things that are high impact. Yeah, I think he does. And kind of be ready. For he, does a, he does a good job of kind of tying it in with, um, in fact, he actually directly quotes a lot of it, was uh, Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky's work around, which is thinking fast and slow, uh, which was another episode. Um, but he does, he does a lot of, to explain just how, how much we um, prefer certain situations over other situations. Like we prefer to have little bits of good uh, all along the way rather than one big hit of good, if that makes sense. So in the sense of people would prefer to be winning, you know, let's say 3% on the stock market every single day. And actually this example is probably going to fall over because of compounding, but let's just say, Let's just say that you you make ten dollars every day um, on on some portfolio versus making a hundred dollars um, after five days. You know, when you extrapolate that out to a, to a longer time horizon that you can't quite grasp as easily, uh, we much prefer the the feeling that comes with with the the little wins each day as opposed to the the bigger win, which is actually more beneficial in that sense. Yeah, it's just unnatural. Yeah. So what what, what does he define as, um, you know, being successful then, you know, or in the sense of what, what is success in this like random-filled world that he... Uh, I mean, that's kind of quite a big question now. Um, I'm, I'm, hey, mate, I guess mate, he kind of talks That's to, why you're here. You're here to answer all the big questions. We a little warning wouldn't have hurt. I would have <laughs> prepared for this one. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> so, so the definition of success, well, I think it's not blowing up, but then I think it's also like, uh, you know, trying to find something that's going to happen across all the large majority of the alternative histories that are gonna, that could play out, you know, I think, in the definition of, say, what he's specifically talking about. But I think in terms of a successful life, he would talk about one that's focused not on worrying about the, the noise of life but actually taking your time to 
really not get caught up in that and actually read, educate yourself deeply on the way that things work over time and then actually, you know, enjoying the things that you want to do and, and, and feast every once in a while to try and uh, get as much personal freedom as you can, get off the treadmill. Yeah, he, yeah, he, from a, from like a randomness, a random world perspective, because he kind of, you know, he, he definitely sees the world as being a random world. And, you know, I think, I think he's certainly onto, onto it there. He, he draws on um, Leibniz, uh, which was a philosopher and who spoke about, you know, God's mind included an infinity of possible worlds. And so, his idea is that you try and basically avoid ruin in as many of those as possible, if that makes sense. So by your decisions, don't blow up in as many of those worlds as possible is kind of, is is probably the the way he would see success in in such a random perceived world. Hmm. You'll notice a lot your anxiety goes down a lot if you stop worrying about the noise as well. Yeah. Just a final point on, on Just the feel the feel good news. So now my turn to ask you a question. Right. Survivorship bias. How does it apply to what is it and how does it apply to his ideas? So we we kind of touched on it earlier, right? Um, and we didn't call it out, but Let's, you know, in your in your case of, of roulette that you spoke about before, right? We've got. I'd prefer you talk about monkeys. Okay. This is the constraint you're putting on the problem. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to make it harder. Right. Because you basically asked me what's what's the meaning of life before. No, no, I didn't. So you didn't listen to the question, Lachlan. <laughs> I'm being facetious. So. It's not about success before you read too far into that. <laughs> this is good. Um, so monkeys, all right. So we all know that the chimpanzees are pretty like ferocious. Actually, we, we don't all know. I think I actually just saw a David Attenborough documentary um, about it, about chimpanzees being like ferocious tribal hunters. And they basically go on these like raiding hunts, these raiding parties of raiding other tribes. So obviously one tribe is going to come up victor and the other one's going to not do so well. So I think in applying that, you could look at the approach that across 10,000 of these different raiding parties, because 10,000 was the the number we're using today. All right. Mm -hmm. And we notice that after a couple of years, a few years of doing this, that there's certain, there's a certain way in which uh, the monkeys from the, uh, the still alive raiding parties, the way in which they peel a banana. And so because of the survivorship bias uh, that we have towards these monkeys being successful because of their uh, abilities, and this is these are these are these are these are raiding parties. Uh, 
uh, who who are equally equipped. They've got equal skill on both sides. I think we need to constrain that. Ah, it's an important constraint in your mm. obscure problem. Um, and so I've made this hard for you. You're doing well. I thought I'm not sure if I am. So <laughs> and then so the you know the the monkeys are equivalent or relatively equivalent in terms of how they're equipped and what we actually end up doing is we go there must be something going on with the monkeys who've survived three years on um and we may attribute that to some uh idiosyncratic behavior that they have like yeah peeling a banana or something like that where in actual fact it may be just be total randomness now, I suspect in the world of chimpanzee brawl, brawling and, and the ferocious fights that they have. Have you seen them, by the way? Uh, I haven't watched them, but I've kind of heard about some of their horrible antics. I mean, that is like the animal kingdom is a brutal place. It's a wild world out there. Um, so they... Uh, they like rip each other's limbs off and stuff. It's crazy. God. Uh, so anyway, just on, on that. Aren't they like our closest relative almost? I, I think so. And I'm seeing some parallels. Um, yeah. <laughs> so the um, the monkeys, yeah, it, it's, it's us attributing things to things that might be purely based on luck but in the in the world of this monkey fighting you probably you probably don't get you probably get through based on your merit and probably just how big your monkeys are more than anything else or how fast they are so it's probably not the greatest example yeah, of in that example can you can yeah. you, can you in that example you, okay what about well let's take it from the face well let's go monkeys and typewriters then Instead, oh, you're coming back to the same example. More random. I like this. So, I wasn't allowed to use rule out, so, but you're allowed to use monkey and typewriters. You could have told whatever monkey story you wanted. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, yeah, for me, the monkey and the typewriters is like, you know, you instead of 10,000 monkeys for 100 million years, you put 10 million monkeys in there for that same 100 million years and then you find the group of 12 monkeys that have written uh, partial edits of parts of Shakespeare's work and you'll find some, some, some sort of pattern that, um, that links them all together, you know. So it's like, uh, you know. Oh, they all uh, have like a, a slightly darker coat or they're longer or something. And, uh, you know, you're actually looking at this group of 12, but you probably, if you looked at the 10 million or whatever I said, you'd find that 60% of them have this same dark coat. But because you're only looking at the winners, you're, you're kind of deducing that there's something about these monkeys that they all have in common that's causing them to win so this can be seen as a direct parallel in a highly random environment such as tech investing or something 
that there are things that are you need to have to get in the game, such as a really hard work ethic, knowing how to code computers, you know, things that are kind of obvious. But then a lot of the success that they have can be relatively random and dependent on, you know, what's the kind of the timing, what what everyone's feeling, the boost it gets from a certain thing early on, who knows? And that that is a particularly highly random environment where there's a winner-take-all kind of situation and you're left with a cohort of white, geeky males who've kind of been to Stanford and they kind of all made these companies. But that doesn't mean that... Uh, that that's kind of the archetype for the people who will only people who make it, you know what I mean? So, or whether they wear T-shirts or they've got this casual style or is it that they... Um, wear a turtleneck. You know, they make their bed a certain way in the morning, wear a turtleneck, do, you know, do things like, uh, you know, have grand these grand visions like Steve Jobs is maybe a really good example of, of this, all these different things we can kind of draw out of his style that many other people probably have too and it's not that simple, you know. Yeah. Well, you've got you've got like a complex thing which is like building a business and building a startup in a complex world in terms of that complex thing fitting into the complex world and and so maybe it's probably yeah better as you started out talking about it mate it was talking at it from the yeah the perspective perspective of the investor. And seeing a successful investor in startups, you know, and it's like, oh, what do you look for? You know, I look for the, the white geeky guy from Stanford. Well, I bet you that is not his, what he's actually on the lookout for. I bet you, you know, he or she is on the lookout for many, many other things. But it still doesn't mean that we can attribute all those various things as being what the keys are for the success of that startup. Because he could be, they could, yeah, they could just, just be in the pool of of mm. the the ten thousand others. Yeah, like that particular attribute that you're trying to say is kind of causal, can actually just be completely random that these people have those things in common. You know, um, again, we're trying to use simple examples of the monkey and the typewriter because the real world's more complicated mm. than that skill counts you know this sort of stuff but the 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 idea kind of holds in that simple example you know and i think it comes down to like this is where he kind of says to pick your heroes wisely because he he, to quote him in the book he says mild success can be explainable Mm -hmm. by skills and labor wild success is generally attributable to variance and uh that one stuck with me. I thought that was quite interesting. Your dentist versus your uh, your stock picker. Yeah. Well, it's like don't look at the Facebooks of the world. Look at the ones that, you know, instead of however many billions of dollars Facebook is worth, look at the ones that might be worth a few million or 10 million or 20 million or something, you know, a much smaller scale. And there might be a lot more things that you can attribute in there. See, yeah, it's see that's interesting. I I think that um, yeah, again, this is the kind of 
the dentist versus the tech guy, I think, is really relevant with this, is that, you know, the low random environments are more likely to have success via skill. Doesn't mean that the other people aren't successful in lack of their skill, but they're probably more successful than they deserve to be for their skill in the random environment. So don't just look at the winners. <laughs> um, and you mentioned, you mentioned before about correlation and causation, right? And I thought that was a really, uh, you know, it's like just because we have every single one of these, these founders has, wears a T-shirt every day, for example, doesn't mean that's the cause uh, of this particular success or makes the bed in a particular way. And he actually plucks out this really great example in the, in the book about uh, from Carl Sagan, who actually, I think, I think Carl Sagan used to wear a turtleneck. So this is very, this is a very fitting example. Classy yeah, guy. Is, um, and so he was a scientist and astronomer. Um, he passed away a few years ago, but he, he was very like anti or it was very on like a, a, a mission to like weed out things that weren't seemingly scientific. And one example he drew was something about um, cancer patients going to visit uh, Lourdes in France. Are you familiar with Lourdes in France? Is that where you get the holy That's water? That's the holy water, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. So I think it's a, must be like Catholic or Christian, you know, you know famous site. And so he did this, uh, this study looking into cancer patients who went to uh, visit Lourdes and obviously, um, you know, try and, um, yeah, whatever. And basically what, he ended up finding out was that the people that visited Lords were less likely to survive their cancer than those who didn't go to visit Lords. And then, so his question was, so are we to presume that people who visit Lords have a higher chance of dying than those who will autom automatically just go into remission? Jeez. So what do you what do you take from that, Lockie? I take from that that no, it's just it's not perfectly it could have swung one way or the other. Over time it'll likely regress to the mean of being equal to that, unless there's some other factor such as uh, really sick people mm. go to Lords. Now, I'm only answering that in that way because you've asked me a question in an episode that we're talking about randomness specifically so I can pick it up. But if you'd mentioned something unrelated to this in passing one day, I wouldn't have kind of picked that up, I don't think. And that's, yeah, that's really, that's very interesting, mate. Um, yeah, the information you may not have had about that thing is, as you said, it may be simply only patients with, you know, stage four cancer were the ones that were attending Lords. You know, we don't know, but um, mm. 
there's often information that's left out that we don't know and information that might be included. So uh, very interesting thought. Around. I love, I love mm-hmm. this. I love this quote that you've picked out here. Um, it says, remember that nobody accepts randomness in their own success, only in their failure. Mm. That's fantastic. I do that yeah. so much. <laughs> Me too. I think um, uh, I think we're all I think we're all subject to that. And you know, whilst we're kind of making making a bit of a mockery earlier about you know picking stocks and and investing in startups and running a startup and things, if if you were in the situation of any of those people, you know, if I was in the situation of any of those people, you'd be like, no, this is this is this is I, I know what I'm doing here. I've, I'm across all this, you know. You, you become you become mm. um, invested in your own way of seeing the world, and and your ego gets tied up in all of that. So, um, but if you looked at mm. you know if if we were doing running you know equivalent startups, for example, um, you'd almost kind of see the luck in the other ones in where the other one had got to where they were versus all the hard work that you're putting in. Yeah. Yeah, it's human it nature, is. isn't it? Um, but yeah, it's certainly a mix of skill and luck and how much of each is different in every example, I think. Um, but it's a fascinating book. And look, it's just a really nice introduction to these ideas and we've covered a few of them in this episode, some of them better than others probably, but um, it's worth a look at might change your perspective on some stuff and, and, and leave you thinking. So, mate... A little differently around the about the so world. So, mate, what's what is the one big thing for you from this book? Your takeaway? Oh, that's to me. It's the signal and the noise. You know, is that I spend so much time worrying about what is noise when I should just be looking a bit further ahead and not getting caught up so much in the day to day, whether it be. The news, which I've managed to cut down a lot, but I've probably gone back to the news a bit since all this uh, upheaval in the world has happened and I'm not sure it's making much of a difference and it's certainly not making me that happy. But also I get caught up in the noise of the day-to-day at work, you know, where I'll just be trying to fight a fire that doesn't really need my attention but I'll want to do it so I feel busy and, and important and useful and important. So I need to kind of take a step back from that and focus on the things that are the the real things that make a big difference. So what about you? Um, I don't want to conflate things with the black swan, right? So I'm going to try and avoid that. And I think the black swan was, it kind of opened up the, uh, open up the mind's eye to some of this stuff. Um, so I think, I think one of the big ones for me was he was very much this survivorship bias but approaching the survivorship bias not from like a perspective of you know not just the fact that there's a lot of randomness in it but from like a perspective of what we're just talking about like compassion you know and not seeing Hmm. randomness just in other people's the way where other people have gotten to but but being compassionate towards you know all the hard effort and and work and stuff that's gone into it, and then 
reflecting back on myself is then seeing some of the randomness that pervades its way into my own life uh, in a in a much greater way and, and try and just tap into that. And I think I think what comes as a result of that that journey is a deeper gratitude, uh, which is, you know, mm. I think a, a great way to um, to think about things and be grateful for what you do have. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great answer. I really like that. I might steal it. You're welcome, mate. You can have it. There's plenty. We can share it around. Cheers. <laughs> um, so have you got a closing quote for us? We've got one today. So... This is, this is, this is, uh, I think this is actually how he concludes the book. So it's very, very fitting for our closing quote for the episode. Uh, he says, it took me an entire lifetime to find out what my generator is. It is. We favor the visible, the embedded, the personal, the narrated, and the tangible. We scorn the abstract. And that's not the abstractable, by the way. Everything good, aesthetics, ethics, and wrong, fooled by randomness, with us seems to flow from it. Hmm. Nice little Randolph, mate. Thank, Thank you. you. And uh, I'll just say, that don't forget, you can find full video from this episode and all of our others on YouTube. So uh, keep in contact. And we do have a website up now two called abstractable.co so go check it out awesome thanks much.